Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is the 23rd of September. We've got a big show coming up. We've got... It's going to be a bit Victoria-focused, so apologies to our interstate listeners, but there is a whole lot of in Victoria we want to talk to about right now. So first up, we've got Sanjeev Sublock. He is the senior public servant with the Victorian Treasury who quit his job last week over the government's lockdown strategy. He's going to be telling us why he did that. He's going to be talking about the groupthink that exists at the top echelons of the Victorian government, which is why we have such a single track mind here from our leaders about lockdown restrictions and so on. I was going to be talking to a friend of the show, David Limbrick, MP from the Liberal Democrats. He is one of the crossbenchers that is going to basically decide if Victoria is a complete police state or not coming up soon because this COVID omnibus bill, which we're about to talk about, is going before the upper house here in Victoria. And there are some provisions in there which are truly, truly frightening. So big two interviews coming up. Pete, anything you're looking forward to? I think the highlight of the show has already been, you know, uh, likening Victoria's response to having a one-track mind. These are the fresh, hot takes you get at the Young IPA podcast, and that's why people keep tuning in week week after week. No, uh, both the interviews are are awesome, uh, and you should look out for that. I love, actually, no, to be honest, the highlight of the show for me is what's happening at the end. It's the trolling of the US Department of Education, which should happen all over the West, but I won't give it away now. Yeah, uh, that is going to be great. But we do have to start with this omnibus bill, which is completely terrifying and extraordinary. So this is a bill that Daniel Andrews uh, has got through the lower house of the Victorian Parliament, and it's coming up to the upper house now. And it's giving the police and other people sanctioned by public uh, servants here in Victoria a lot more power to detain people, a lot more power to arrest people, and a lot more power to enforce the law. So here's some of the stuff that is available under this bill. So any person that the, the authorised officer or like, you know, a public servant uh, reasonably believes is likely to fail to comply with an emergency direction as, and is a close contact of a person diagnosed with COVID-19 uh, is allowed to be arrested and detainment can go on for as long as that person decides is okay. Now, usually under the state of emergency powers here in Victoria, this has been at the discretion of the Victoria Police. This has now expanded to anyone that public servants deem allowed so we're talking psros we are talking private security guards we are i mean there's even cases that people are bringing up right now uh which could involve uh labor party officials uh talking about small businesses or union people talking about the businesses that they are uh you know up against in industrial disputes Uh, it's completely extraordinary that this is even being considered let alone being debated and possibly even passed pete what were your takes well, uh, the thing that I thought about this was, and you described it really well, I would add that it also has the powers to detain children. Um, the thing that I would add about this is that it's just terrifying what's become normal. It's terrifying the things that would have been incredible national scandals six months ago now happen every couple of days and no one even notices it. You know, we've got a curfew, we've got the state under house arrest. We had a case in the last couple of weeks where a woman with cerebral palsy and her elderly mother were told to move on by police and they sat down during a walk because they were tired and the police made them move on and it's terrifying that this is even on the table, uh, let alone has a chance of getting passed. Uh, and John Roscombe called this the most dra- dramatic violation. John Roscombe, our boss here at the IPA, obviously, uh, called this the most dr- dramatic violation of human rights in Australian history. You know, this is incredible stuff, um, and it's and it's massive news. Even Julian Bernstein finally got off the couch 
and criticised this, you know, abuse of human rights. So yeah, huge stuff. What about you, James? Uh, yeah, I was, that was exactly what I was going to say. If, if you've oh, lost no. Julian Burnside, if Daniel Andrews has lost Julian Burnside, things have gone extraordinary. So I don't know. It, it's really dark. The latest coming out from the upper house is that it probably won't pass. Fiona Patton and the Greens, who were two of the reasons that Daniel Andrews was able to extend his six-month state of emergency, have said they're not supporting the bill in the current form, which you know, in a sense is good, but in another sense, like that was the language he chose. I'm just not going to support the bill in the current form. Not, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. I can't believe it even passed the lower house, but you know, take victories where you can get it. So hopefully it doesn't pass. We are going to be talking to David Lindbrick about his opinions later, but I don't think I expect myself that clearly. Theoretically, union officials could be handed incredibly powerful industrial relations weapon of being able to detain any employer who they classified as likely to offend. That's from uh, Gottlieb's column in the Australian a few days ago. So that's basically where we were at. I mean, on suspicion that you're likely to break a restriction, that is incredible. So if you just go, oh, you know, maybe maybe they're a bit lax about the curfew. Maybe they're a bit lax about the 5Ks. I'm going to arrest them. That is where we might be at in Victoria. That is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, even someone who's just getting a bit mouthy and criticizing the government, they could just be thought, well, hmm, they sound like they're going to uh, commit a crime. Um, yeah, and it's just whoever the government decides can become one of these officers. Uh, interesting that you talked about with uh, amendments or with change, you know, what was it? The bill in its current form. If they didn't want to accept the bill in its current form, I think the Greens want to include people who, you know, don't have renewable energy, and that, that's the kind of amendment they're looking <laughs> yeah. for. Uh, it doesn't go and- far enough. Yeah, it doesn't go far enough. We can include a few more thought criminals in this. My favourite bit was Daniel Andrews, right? So this is sort of put to him as the press conference. This is an extraordinary, you know, uh, reversal of the rule of law, blah, 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 blah. But, um, you know, uh, that that was the argument. Now, he said, I get that. This is, a, this is an unprecedented time. Um, and he said, in terms of recruitment, process, oversight, all that can be managed. It's like, how have you guys gone with recruiting your own private police force in the in the last few months? You know, like, how have you guys gone doing that? I, I, really? Don't worry about it. Dan Andrews and the, and the gang have got it all sorted out. Don't worry, people of Victoria. It's fine. Yeah. And the last point I'll bring up is that obviously there's been so many stories of Victoria police, like the people we who genuinely have been trained and are paid to keep us safe. There's so many stories of Victoria police completely, uh, you know, overreacting, I would say, running over a guy and stomping on his head. And some of the other videos that we've all seen, the Zoe Bueller case, obviously. Now, imagine those sort of powers trusted with people that aren't as well-trained, like PSOs or private security guards. That's where we're at. Mm. Um, and then... We'll move on because we're going to be talking about a lot of those issues with David Limbrick because, uh, you know, the thing is, Daniel Andrews is still popular. We had the news poll come out earlier this week that shows that 62% of Victorians are satisfied with Daniel Andrews overall, that uh, 62% of Victorians are satisfied with the way he's handling coronavirus. Go over to Queensland, it is even more. It's 63% for Anastasia Palaget overall and 68% of people uh, for her performance in handling coronavirus. I mean, it, it's kind of every leader seems to be doing quite well. The The... Maybe it's slipping a bit from where it was a couple of months previously, but it's still a huge level of support for both the premiers and the way that they're handling coronavirus, despite all of the problems we're seeing. Yeah, you're right. It was it was about 85% in April, um, but yeah, people are 
I guess, rallying around the leaders at this point. I mean, as I said last time, because I think it was pretty much exactly the same amount. I think it was 61% or 62% a month ago in terms of handling of the pandemic. It's like, as I said then, which which part is the bit that you think has been handled well? Because even people who agree with the overall strategy, how on earth could you argue that the implementation of that strategy has been uh, been good? But um, yeah, no, it's interesting. I think... I think Talking to people who aren't that engaged, or not that not that engaged, because everyone's engaged these days. But talking to people, they just sort of say, "Well, two hundred thousand deaths in America. I get it. Has, I get it hasn't been perfect, but we're only on eight hundred deaths in Australia and seven hundred odd deaths, I think, in Victoria or seven six hundred maybe." So people just say, "Look, we can't. We haven't done that badly." And it's sort of like, "Okay, well, it's good that you're comparing us with America. Maybe you should compare Victoria with New South Wales." But I think that's where it comes from. I would assume so too. And then a lot of people citing all the rising case numbers in Europe that we're about to get into as well. Mm. And I think it's just also, it, it says a lot about people's relationship with authority in times of crisis. I mean, I think you just trust the leader because the alternative, which is what Pete and I are in and what a lot of our listeners would be in, where you're in a crisis and you don't trust the leader is an incredibly distressing period to find yourself in. So if you can just go, look, I support it. I don't know, it helps you sleep at night. Like, I'm not saying that people are lying to themselves, but I'm just saying that you might default to trusting the people in the crisis because the alternative is too distressing. Yeah, it's definitely more frustrating going through this thinking that we don't necessarily have to be going through all of this. And there's probably an element... Like, I've even pulled back from just dropping my truth bombs on... um, on, you know, non-political group chats (laughs) because, you know, I don't want to make life more difficult for people, but... um, uh, You're yeah, a better man than me. <laughs> I can't hold myself back. <laughs> it could be a nil or draw, but yeah. And there's also there's the two Australias thing. So there's a lot of people out there that are like, you know, this just a bit of watching Netflix, you know, and they don't know anyone who it's more than watching Netflix. So yeah, there's an element of that too. All right. Uh, so third topic I want to talk about is the Queensland ACT border. Now a lot of listeners, a lot of members of the IPA, Pete and I, we were fired up that Sarah Casey was banned from her father's funeral, despite yeah. the ACT not having a case of coronavirus for 62 days, and Queensland still labelling the place a hotspot. Banned from the funeral, forced to attend on a private viewing, dressed in full PPE gear, under police guard in case that she should, you know, hug her mother as they bury their father. But uh, that is where Queensland were at. And now a miraculous change because the ACT border is getting relaxed. ACT residents will not have to quarantine themselves when visiting Queensland. So bad luck for Sarah. Missed out by only a couple of days. Um, But, you know, to me, this is the extraordinary thing about how a lot of the leaders say they're following the science advice, but it's clearly pulse. Like, clearly they would have gone, okay, the election is coming up, the public side with Sarah, and things need to change. And we saw them wheel out Jeanette Young to say that some of the decisions they're making are scientific when, you know, apparently it's a scientific reason that Tom Hanks brings movies, uh, movie money in. But it's just, it's this innocent person getting caught up in the world of poll-driven politicking, and your heart just absolutely goes out to it. Yeah, the Jeanette Young School of Public Relations. But um, yeah, it is interesting. Like it's sort of, you know, that's democracy. People follow the polls. That's kind of how it works. It's not most political leaders, you know, don't have the, the leadership. It's a very special political leader, a very talented political leader that says, this is not popular, but I'm going to eventually win this argument if I just, you know, explain it to the people, you know, and eventually they'll accept it. Kind of like, I guess, the Hawke Keating economic reforms were sort of different. I was just going to go Churchill against Hitler. You know, 1938. 
Churchill against Hitler, yeah. Um, so, you know, most most polls just follow the polls, which is why, you know, it's important for people yeah. to change their mind and answer the polls differently. <laughs> yeah, I should say, like, it's a good thing that the border has opened up, so we should be going, you know, there's got to be the carrot and the stick of just going like, okay, good, you've opened up the borders, and then New South Australia have opened up the borders, New South Wales, like, this is where we should be going. But it's yeah. just so annoying that it takes a woman losing her father to get any traction on the case going, and not, like, the clear economic and clear livelihood benefits it's going to provide to so many people. It's just when the media gets the story, that's when things change. Um, all right, should we talk Europe? Let's talk Europe. Uh, so, James, daily case numbers in the European Union and, 90, and United Kingdom this week reached record highs of more than 45,000 on a 14-day notification rate, according to the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. So, new restrictions are being brought in in a lot of places, different parts of Europe. I won't go through them all. Uh, new restrictions were announced on Friday in Madrid. Britain registered 4,000 new cases, the highest since early May. Uh, so it's interesting, James, what's going to happen here because we've seen, um, we've talked about, you know, relationship between people and leaders here in Victoria and here in Australia, how the Europeans will react to the idea that they'll go back into lockdown if in fact that's what happens because we've already seen protests in Britain about that over the weekend about not going back into lockdown. So it'd be interesting to see if the Europeans are like, nah, no way are we doing that. What do you think? Yeah, so the Britain one's going to be interesting. So they've brought in that you can't have... I think it's like the rule of six is what they're calling it. You can only have six people over at one time. And then the latest restriction being the pubs and bars have to close at 10. And part of me just goes... Because I'm just seeing the anger in Britain at that. And then you just reflect on like just how bad restrictions are here in Victoria that yeah. we don't even have those. Yeah. So there is that. Um, yeah, I just... Look... A lot of countries are bracing for a second lockdown and this stat is only available as of recording right now. So maybe this take will age horribly, but I can tell you one country that's certainly not bracing for a second wave at the moment and that is Sweden. So you just wonder if lockdowns and restrictions are the golden policy that is going to defeat coronavirus. And I don't know, it's just... It's this classic thing of like, is this going to be the answer every time cases rise until we have a vaccine? Like, we're just going to free up the economy a little bit and then cases will rise because obviously that's what's happened. And then we've got to lock down again and then we'll restrict, restrict, uh, ease restrictions, ease restrictions, and then lock down again. Is that considering that the vaccines might not be here for at least a year, maybe two, maybe even longer, is this seriously how we're going to spend the next couple of years of our lives? Yeah, well, that's interesting. And that's what's driving their policy here in Victoria of we're not opening up until we get to zero because they know how politically difficult it would be to lock down again if they brought if numbers went up again. Um, yeah, no, nah, it's, it's, it's interesting that point you're raising. Like, it was like, we'll lock down and we'll get rid of it and then, then we'll move on with our lives. And that's what everyone out there thinks is going to happen. But it's like the chances of that actually happening are pretty low. Like, the numbers probably will come back again. Um, and it's... And it's, yeah, it's if governments are willing to prepare to live with the virus without complete lockdowns, you can see studies have come out in the last few months saying, you know, there was a study, I think, of, yeah, 50 different countries were hit by the pandemic up until May. They all had different levels of lockdown and they all had different uh, paces at which those lockdowns were brought in and the researchers couldn't find a relationship between lockdown and, and, and deaths. It doesn't mean that relationship wasn't there. It just means they couldn't find it. So there's things like that. We saw that the MIT study that we've talked about a few times, which showed that um, measures directed towards 
vulnerable groups are more effective than blanket lockdowns in terms of saving lives uh, rather than wasting money locking down people who don't need to be protected. That's yeah, that really seems to be the takeaway from Southeast Asia, the countries that were able to really um, make sure that they were there for the elderly and they didn't mm. lock down other parts of society, didn't manage to get through pretty easily. Yeah, so it's interesting to see if whether countries are prepared to do that. The Sweden one's good. We don't want to jump the gun like all the ABC journalists did and say as soon as Sweden's death rate was higher than like Norway go... It's failed, um, but it is interesting to see that yeah. their numbers well, are like, going up. When Sweden's economy contracts, because literally every country in the world had their economy contract, and they go, see, they didn't even get what they wanted on that side. It's like, yeah, because welcome to globalization. Like, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. This is what happens. And they said it doesn't, it's, it's the economy versus lives, and it hasn't saved the economy. It's like, you guys invented the economy versus lives things. That was you. <laughs> we never said it was about the economy. It's just better to have your freedoms if losing them makes no difference to the virus. So, um, yeah, because cause like a guy came out, this epidemiologist in Denmark, and said, oh, Sweden's right. This proves that Sweden's right. And the Swedish, this that was like this week, and the Swedish minister guy goes, the guy in charge goes, you know, poured complete cold water on it. I think he had it right the first time. I think his title is minister guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The guy, you know, everyone, every country's now got, you know, the guy or the woman in charge. Yeah, the minister guy. Yeah. And uh, and he goes, yeah, he's like, that. he said, you know, as they've all been saying in Sweden, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? Because they've straight away twigged to the fact that this is going to go on for years and years and it's not sustainable to keep people in lockdown for years. Anyway, we'll see what happens. We're not calling either way. Okay, last story we should talk about. Sorry, this is something that's got the US in... Uh, a fair bit of division at the moment, certainly online. That is a death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the US Supreme Court Justice. Um, so her death opens up a Supreme Court vacancy, obviously very contested, only, what, less than two months out from an election. Donald Trump might be able to install another conservative into the Supreme Court. And there is a whole lot of ramifications of that. Um I don't know. I would start off with this. I don't know if my expectations are just this low for him or if he actually spoke very well, but I thought what Trump actually said when he was told about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death was pretty good. There was footage of him literally being told on camera and him just going, she had an extraordinary life and, you know, just expanded on that. And I just thought, oh, like, I thought you would have immediately reached out for your phone and tweeted something. But, you know, he's right. Like, that is an extraordinary life, regardless of what you think about her policies. And... I don't know, here we are now with a very divided country 50 days before an election. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of thrown an, uh, another thing into the mix. It's interesting because it's obviously a culture war who is on the Supreme Court, but it's a really substantive issue as well because who is on the Supreme Court has a big impact on American life for decades because they can be there for ages. And the way the American political system is set up is that a lot of things end up before the Supreme Court and in the court system and are not solved by politics more so than in Australia and other places. Um, and particularly really contested social issues like abortion and gay marriage and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it, it is a big deal. And, and the reason a lot of people voted for Trump was because they thought, I don't like this guy, but he is going to make conservative appointments to the Supreme Court and conservative appointments to the federal courts. And he's done hundreds of appointments to the federal court and uh, a couple of appointments to the Supreme Court. So, and he sort of said, that's my biggest achievement of the of my presidency. So it is a big deal. Um, the Democrats are kind of inv- trying to invoke this thing that you're not meant to make a change to the Supreme Court in the last year of your term as a president, uh, which kind of feels, looking back at it, is one of those issues that people flip-flop on depending on who's actually got the choice. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. the most obvious political football. Like, when yeah. we do it, fine. When you do it, not cool. Not cool, yeah. man. Why would you do that? 
So this whole thing that Trump's the worst person in history for doing it is obviously not true. Um, be interesting to see who he chooses. Interesting to see yeah, how it plays the, out because it has to happen quickly. The other part is like I saw a lot of uh, very emotional uh, statuses from friends of mine, both here and in America. People really feeling lost and feeling aggrieved and certainly that's something that you see a lot of not even just from friends of yours you just see it in the media my thought is if one person's death has this much uh context over the future of america right if, if this person's like our rights are either existing or they're all for nothing just on this person's life then that person might have just a little bit too much power. There might just be a little too much power at the very highest points of American society if everything comes up or down based on whether this person is breathing. So, James Bolt, headline, James Bolt, (laughs) America's constitutional architects got it wrong. No, I'm just saying, like, maybe there are way too many things that the Supreme Court need to decide and that the President needs to decide and that Congress needs to decide because... If, if you've got that much wrapped up with these small groups of people, then they probably have a bit too much power. Would be my Potentially. Thought. Potentially. You're not, uh, not and then the last wrong. one, um, a popular one from Chuck Schumer and from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was the idea that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her dying wish that was uh, her seat would not be filled until there was a new, new president installed. Like... Uh, you know, that, that phrasing was interesting in itself. New president installed. And I don't know, yeah. maybe we have to cut this part, but I do like the idea that uh, <laughs> that would abrogate the constitution. Like, that, that, I know what the constitution says, but that was a dying wish. Like, I mean, Trump lost his brother. Imagine if he just came out and said, look, guys, my brother's dying wish was four more years. Sorry, we called it just cancel the election. Yeah. Uh, like, taking that on face value, if that's actually what happens, like, with all due respect to her, that's straight up not how it works. So, yeah. Um, I didn't realise we could say we might have to cut this bit before stuff. <laughs> I I'm just giving Saul, producer Saul, just like if you need to hover over the red button, do so now and maybe write down the time code in case we do need to take it out. But if people are listening to this, uh, producer Saul says it's okay. All right. Uh, got to keep it tight because we've got two big interviews. So we'll yeah. move on to heroes and villains. Uh, this is the Grunt the Pig Freedom Snort for anyone who donated. Uh, sorry, anyone who stood up for freedom this week. Bit of a teaser as to what mine is going to be, but... Uh, Pete, who is your hero this week? I accidentally scrolled down to my villain, but now I'm in the right spot. My hero yeah, this week... Yeah, that would week, be a bad one to mix up. This, <laughs> it would have been, especially this week. My hero this week is Daniel Eck, CEO of Spotify. So Vice reported that Spotify employees have conducted more than 10 meetings to try and get episodes of Joe Rogan's podcast taken off the platform because it is allegedly transphobic. Uh, of particular focus is an interview he had with, or a conversation as Joe does it, uh, with Abigail Schreier, who wrote Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Uh, potentially, this has, gone all the way to, this has gone all the way to the top of Spotify, where Daniel Eck has gone, no, mate, sorry, we're not getting rid of it. Um, so you know yeah, how much money we paid for this podcast. Yeah, exactly. This would exactly. be the worst thing we would do. And it's like, the, the fact that Spotify battlers think they can like, Tell Joe Rogan to take down episodes of his podcast is just unbelievably 2020. Um, and yeah, just good on him for not being a coward. That's the other side of cancel culture and sticking with it. Yeah, but, ho- well, hopefully, because the Joe Rogan podcast being one of the last freewheeling interviews where people seem to be uncancelable for what they say on the Joe Rogan podcast unless Elon Musk takes a hit from a blunt and sends mm. his stock price crashing. But uh, if, if we lose Joe Rogan podcast, we lose 
a lot. So hopefully yeah. you see the Spotify stays true. Okay, my hero this week is basically anyone out there that donated to the Zoe Bueller Legal Defense Fund. I have Good just one. logged out of the uh, page for some reason. No, I'm back in. So yeah, the Zoe Bueller Legal Defense Fund raised $58,000, 151 in just the first week. Zoe Bueller obviously being the Ballarat woman who was handcuffed and let out in front of her children because of the crime of posting a status to Facebook, which is one of the more disgusting things I've ever seen. So, you know, uh, Liberty Works, great people. They have set up a GoFundMe to raise money for Zoe's legal costs. As I said, we're at 58000 in just a week. Go to give.libertyworks.org.au slash free Zoe Bueller with like dashes between the words if you want to join in and donate because it is such an important case. All right, villains. Great stuff. All right, so Extinction Rebellion, fake nudity run, villainy of the... Yeah, week awards roll the tape as Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. Of course, that was the fake nudity run that we now call anyone who poses freedom. We give them the fake nudity run award. James, who is your nominee for this week? All right, so Dr. Stephen Downs, renowned restaurant critic, is written for the Age, the Sunday Age, the Australian Financial Review, and the Herald Sun. Now, with the uh, recovery roadmap at the moment, and I don't know if if other states are approaching this as much as Melbourne, but we're certainly looking to Europe and to New York for our recovery as being okay. Instead of eating inside, maybe you could eat outside because that will slow the spread of, uh, you know, disease. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the word disease spreading. We'll just go with that. Sorry, eat outside, which Lucky would be you're not the one- minister guy. Luckily, I'm not minister guide, um, which would be one, the right thing to do, help businesses out, repeal some laws that are going to make sure that people can do these things. And two, eating outside is cool. But not so for Stephen Downs, who objected to this, not on the grounds that, as we talked to uh, Dom Talamanidis, not on the grounds that eating outside might not be viable for all these restaurants, not on the grounds that there are better places to... Uh, deregulate, which would all be worthwhile things to do, but I certainly think that businesses should have the option to make people eat outside if they so wish. But he just goes because it's not cool. Quote, Melbourne is not New York, Rome or Paris. Eating outdoors in those cities is performed for, for performance reasons. You want to be seen to be doing it. It's cool. You may watch strange folk trying to be cool. You may imagine that you're a local. Melbournians, on the other hand, are considerably more sophisticated. We eat outdoors to revel in flavors and textures. We are smart diners, perhaps the world's smartest. Have you ever heard someone sound more like a jerk and more like a person I would want absolutely nowhere near my meal than Dr. Stephen Downs? Well, that is the worst go oh, well, actually, of all time. It's like, come on, mate. Now's not the time. I don't even understand his argument. So is he saying we shouldn't have outdoor dining or that we do We shouldn't have reasons? outdoor dining because it's not cool. Come on, mate. Imagine no, wanting to the- support you. Wanting to support your state's hospitality recovery is such a Chad move. Why would you want to be that? People in Melbourne eat outside all the time anyway. It's just when it's sunny. Um, no, nah, not with that. What was that guy's name? Dr. Stephen Downs. Well, oh, Extraordinary food, pace. He's a food critic that's a doctor. There's your problem. Uh, now, I'm going to take my food critic business elsewhere, James. Put it that way. Okay, my villain is... The mad effing witches who are up in the villains column pretty regularly, uh, they are just the worst. So the mad effing witches, can't say it properly because this is a family podcast. They tweeted during the week, witches, overnight our team has worked our asses off and has updated the death merchants tab in this link, which was definitely a link to the website an old person made, to provide you with all the contact details you need for these bastard restaurants threatening Vic lockdown rules it went on now it's your turn get in touch with them via those deets and advise you're boycotting their eatery till they publicly withdraw publicly withdraw support for the ipa backed stance 
uh, and then it goes on. But that's the main that's the main bit of it. Now, I like we get a mention. Yeah, oh, good. I, yeah. I, I didn't realize that till I till I got to the second link. But yeah, we got to mention, and they um, the 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 tab on the website had it did for some reason have like BHP and, and AIG and stuff like that, which are massive companies. But um, it also had mum and dad bloody restaurants, and the fact that you would get people to harass and intimidate people who are struggling or already on their knees during a pandemic i don't know what kind of flog you must be to do that and i just think these people are horrendous you are horrendous like imagine these people they can't open they've got to homeschool their kids they're watching their lives slip away and they get a call from some absolute nuffer who's never done anything in their life and saying oh, i don't like your stance on the lockdown nah you know, Getting with these bit. emotions running rampant in society, I'm just glad that the presence of police powers has been expanded to people that are not the police. Yeah. Who knows who's got them now? Yeah. Give it to the bloody mad witches, whatever they're called. They're right. terrible. Okay. Uh, sorry. Like I said, we've got two big interviews. We have Sanjeev Sablok, the Victorian senior public servant that quit his job over lockdown strategy. We're going to be talking to him about why and uh, the group think that exists. And then we're going to be talking to David Limbrook about this COVID omnibus. So I'll go to those interviews now. Okay, we're now welcome on to the show Sanjeev Sablok, who is a former economist with the Victorian Department of Treasury and Finance. And Sanjeev has uh, quit his job this week after being told to remove social media posts critical of Victoria's handling of lockdowns and coronavirus in general, and then wrote about what should have happened in an article for the Australian Financial Review this week titled, Why I Quit Rather Than Be Silenced, which everyone should read. So I want to start right there, Sanjeev. What inspired you to write that article? Well, the article was the natural consequence of the, um, the need for me to speak uh, the uh, I have been obviously trying to speak within the department. Um, I'm a lifelong career public servant. Okay, so I've spent nearly 18 plus years in India in the senior executive service and another 19 and a half years in Australia, all in the pu- uh, public sector. So I'm a, I'm a very diligent and, uh, you know, uh, public servant who wants to keep everything confidential and do things in the right way. So I had obviously, you know, raised a lot of matters internally and that wasn't obviously heard. Um, leading me to obviously social media to vent some of my general thoughts, which continued for about a few months. Uh, And then it became really personal. Um, I got really upset and I explained explained this to my managers and so on, that this whole thing is very upsetting personally. And that is when they start imposing uh, restrictions um, like face masks in the open air. And I'm a very diligent face mask mask guy. I've been writing about this. I've written 17 articles about this in my Times of India blog over the last six months. And I have advocated masks as a as a defense measure, you know, as a kind of an additional defense, but only when you need it. And uh, you don't use, uh, you know, you don't use your defense everywhere in the world. You use it where it's where it's likely to be an issue. Uh, so open air, uh, you know, 50, 60 meters uh, open air walking in Ruffy Lake Park. I, I, I recorded a video and sent it to the chief health officer by Twitter saying, hey, guy, can you please explain to me what's the logic behind this? Because, you know, one of the fundamental principles is that all regulation needs to be risk-based and all, the, all of it needs to be proportionate and all of it needs to be justified and so that it's very clear to the people why they're doing certain things because the law is not necessarily right all the time and, the, and you have to make sure that the public understand it. it. You know, as Hayek says, law is something that you believe as a society. In the end, it's something that you adopt naturally because it is the right thing to do. And for that, you need to know why it is so. The food regulation, for example, everybody in society accepts the, the kind of restrictions on food regulation because we, 
we know it's uh, there are risks, and it's very risk-based, by the way. Let me assure you that because we have I've worked in food regulation, and food safety, so and I worked in health and safety as well in the Victorian Work Cover Authority. So the the net point was that I was getting personally aggravated. There wasn't any way out within the department to raise the matters, and uh, I started getting really and, and what really then took really really hit me personally, you know, because I'm one of those guys who really really hates uh, brutality by anybody. And I saw starting police brutalities. Uh, first of all, they bashed up somebody, you know, was wearing, not wearing a mask, a, a young girl or something. And then they started entering into people's and the curfew. So people, you know, videos coming out, the people are, police are coming and asking questions if you stand one meter outside your house. Hey guy, it's, uh, there's no one around. What are you talking about? Why are you here, police? What are you trying to do here in this, uh, you know? So the whole thing began to, to resonate to me, to sound to me like 1984, like, the police state, the totalitarianism of communism, and by the way, the laws that were imposed, the, the restrictions, you know, this business, thou shalt do this and thou shalt, thou shalt do that. This is exactly what communism does. So we have, we, we suddenly degenerated from an emergency or a crisis situation into a full-blown communist state. Now, uh, obviously, these matters are, you know, being a public servant, I raised them on, more, on a more general basis for a long time, but then it started getting really personal when the uh, brutality started increasing in a very large way. And I, I actually uh, really got pissed off, that's the, the word, you know, and, and I, I think I expressed some things which I haven't even looked at what I expressed because I think I stand by everything I've said. I, these are my honest emotions and feelings. And I don't think I've violated any of the, you know, conduct rules because I'm... Uh, allowed to speak on things which I do not deal with in my official capacity. But, you know, when I was asked at that stage uh, on the 9th, that is last week, um, not this week, uh, last Wednesday, uh, uh, after at 3.45, the meeting was held, and uh, I was asked by DDF senior executive, uh, hey, guy, you know, that I would remove my social media posts that are critical, either directly or indirectly, of this, uh, you know, the situation that's happening in front of us. Uh, um, that I think I basically decided at the point that this is ridiculous because uh, I, I actually need to now get out, raise the alarm. It's no longer worthwhile to stay uh, and support uh, this, uh, this totalitarian state uh, for the simple reason that I do not serve Dan Andrews. I do not serve Ted Bellew. I serve the people of Victoria. I, I serve, uh, I get paid by the taxpayers. I don't get paid by, by Ted Bailu or by Dan Andrews or whoever is the premier. I'm not naming anybody, but I do not serve a government. I'm here to provide the best possible advice and, and be, uh, uh, you know, and provide value for money to the taxpayer. And I think at that stage when I can't do that, I, I decided I need to speak out. And I think that was, a, that was uh, nothing more than what I've been saying more or less for the last 17 articles in the Times of India and then thousands of tweets and social media posts over the last six months. So I've been arguing for good policy making in this space. And I think I made the same argument in my Fin Review uh, you know, op, um, article. And um, yeah, as I said, uh, you know, two days ago, <laughs> they, they accepted it. And I wrote it on, I think on Tuesday, and they accepted it immediately. And then the, they wanted to do, do, do uh, due diligence on me to see that actually I was a genuine character. And they found that it's true, and then they did publish it. And it, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm sort of amazed at the kind of uptake of that uh, issue. It's uh, been reported in the Australian Daily Mail, and you know there've been some, as I said, some interviews from television. I'm, I'm, I'm really delighted that uh, the society is ready to listen to this in a in a more formal manner. I'm now a public 
uh, you know, commentator, a, a free citizen, and I speak and assert my rights, and I want to emphasize, I'm asserting my rights that I will not allow Victoria to become China. I will fight till the very end, and I will not allow that. And I think if, everyone's, if everyone decides that, they will not allow their country to become China, uh, Wuhan, and, and you know, to have unprincipled policy, un, un, uh, unjustified policy. If all of us decide that, as a country, as a state, I think Australia will come out of this much stronger. And one of the things I've argued a few, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, and I published in the Catalyxy Files as well, is I think Australia finally needs to really think about the, the powers that we give to our governments during these uh, pandemics and internal crisis. Uh, I love the Swedish, Swedish model, which uh, does not allow the government to restrict any of the liberties, uh, except at, in, in war. So, you know, peacetime emergency is not permitted in Sweden. And so they could not restrict any of the, uh, you know, power of citizens. So they had to allow, uh, you know, voluntary self-determination by citizens. And I think that's the fundamental lesson for, it's the next evolution and freedom. You know, I've been writing a lot about freedom and I've written a, a manuscript is about 600 pages long. Uh, a number of other things I've been writing. Uh, so I think there's an evolution of freedom. You know, when you look at uh, the way it started with John Locke and then it moves into uh, Jefferson and then it moves, uh, uh, you know, further into the fight against communism. And now we are fighting against ourselves as a Western civilization that has forgotten the principles of liberty and the forgotten the fact that the state, that the, the government is our servant and the servant does not have the power to bind the master. You know, I am the master, Dan Andrews is my servant, and he does not have the power to bind me with a mask in outdoor spaces unless I am persuaded that that's the right thing for me. Okay, so yeah, I, I think that's what I want to ask you about is because the uh, w what we're seeing is that there's just so much power right now with the bureaucracy in Victoria, and then yeah. the, that the bureaucrats are the ones that are making these decisions that are affecting so many people financially, but they're not the ones that are... Um, being affected as much. Do you reckon there is a strong groupthink within Victoria Treasury or do you reckon there are people like you there that are able to express themselves freely? I can assure you there is a very strong level of groupthink. I've been getting messages from my former DTF colleagues. Many of them have written to me in great support of my actions and confirming the groupthink that they are experiencing in their life within the department. I believe that this is a matter I'm going to raise. Uh, I've raised, I've alluded to this uh, uh, tangentially in one of, in the my fin review thing i've actually raised two governance issues about the group think issue and i've raised the issue about the the incentives of the senior bureaucracy and i will elaborate upon these in the coming uh, and i think i've raised the matter with the constitutional you know issue with you now and i also put on catholic Cal i want to write about these governance issues to me that's a really significant thing that yeah, that the bureaucracy and i think i mentioned uh, to, uh, to, uh, to peter yesterday in the sky news thing that uh, there is this um, obligation you know, there's a very strong distinction within uh, an effective government between line agencies and the central agencies. I, I, I don't know if they worked in government, but you know, we actually see that as a very strong distinction because the line ex agencies are, are the experts in their field. But the, 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 the premier's department and the treasury, they, we are not experts in that field, but we are, ex we are we basically trained, professionally trained to look at the whole society and not just now, but in the future, and to look at not just the direct effects, but also the indirect effect, indirect effects, and to look at the visible and the invisible, and and that kind of training that we have and and we are paid for, has to be applied to every every policy that the government takes, so that Victoria as a whole is served well. Uh,
from the, the, the billions of dollars being spent on public servants, like, you know, people like us. So I think the, uh, there have been a number of governance issues and governance failures that uh, I will be uh, raising quite significantly. Uh, and, and groupthink is a very serious issue, by the way, in this case. Sanjeev, one of the parts of your piece that I loved the most was when you wrote, voluntary performance-based rules would allow the private sector to innovate, leaving people with the power of agency to determine their own fate. Now, you talked about groupthink in the bureaucracy and how it's a big issue. Did you ever actually mention, did you ever say that sentence in a meeting in the bureaucracy? Because surely the building would self-combust at the very prospect of the idea that people could make decisions about their own lives. I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, do you have any examples of where you kind of raise this idea that people should be free to make their own choices and what kind of reaction that got from your colleagues? Well, I can assure you, uh, Peter, that there are a very large number of wonderful economists within the treasury. I really love and admire them. I, they all understand exactly what I'm saying and what uh, we've raised. We have raised these matters in our day-to-day policy advice for the last, I've, done, I've been there for 15 years. I would not have been there if I had realized that these guys are pushing some kind of a socialist agenda. We are allowed and we are given the full freedom in the normal case of, uh, you know, normal situation to actually advise the government on all these matters. All right. So we have, we have the, we have been doing that. And I think this particular thing is not something that I'm the first person. I mean, there are, there's a huge history in economics, right? The whole idea that knowledge is diffused, that, uh, you know, the knowledge of local circumstances is only known to everybody individually, you know, with their budget constraints, with their circumstances, social information, and every business knows his or her, you know, uh, field better than anybody can know. So as Hayek would say that it's fatal conceit for us to try to imagine that we can, we can find the answers for other people. All we can do as a government is to, ad, is to give them the broad performance measures and say, here guys, this is a bit of a risk out here. And I want, to, I want you to be aware that these are the kind of things you could do, but I want you to ensure yourself uh, uh, an environment that is relatively free of risk. Now, you remember, we cannot have absolutely zero risk. That is an impossibility, and the government recognizes that in its own documents. So we are not talking of zero risk. This is an act of God, as you could say. You know, as Mother Nature has given us something, or maybe, you know, the Chinese lab, I don't really care, but the net result is it's, it's an act of God of some sort. An act of God is not something that then you start applying restrict, restrictions that will actually go and kill other people. One of the more depressing things about the way that the Victorian government's handled this is that there's so little parliamentary oversight or ways for people to uh, push back against some of the ideas. And unfortunately, it does fall to people that are within the public service to be able to provide Daniel Andrews with alternative advice. Now, you mentioned before that you had colleagues that were writing to you talking that, saying that they agreed with you and saying that there are governance issues that are in the public service. Absolutely. Do you reckon there is enough people in there, potentially people in high places, that we actually can see some change? Because I don't think we're going to be able to push for change through other channels for at least the next couple of months. Uh, well, I think in the in the history of freedom, I, I don't think in months, I think in centuries. So look, my, my perspectives are slightly different. I believe that uh, uh, a thing of this sort that's raised, uh, let me go back to the change in the public management system in Australia briefly, uh, which actually was a very big deal in the 1990s when we changed from the public uh, permanent uh, bureaucracy to a contractual bureaucracy. Okay, that led to slightly different incentives. What I'm trying to say is that these things will take its, their own time. Uh, I would believe I believe that this debate needs to start now. I don't see any hope of any changes in the next two months. I, I would be it would be utterly, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, <laughs> delusional, I would say, to expect changes in two months. We would expect to see the same political stuff playing out. Uh, you know, people doing politics, etc., whether it's liberal, labor, etc., and all that stuff will, you know, the skirmishes will continue in this manner. But the issues that are coming out from this whole exercise, to me, are for one extra next step in the in the march towards freedom in the West, and that march is to slow down and prevent government from acting in the in the guise of an emergency to because what's happened here is actually the the emergency powers that have allowed Dan Andrews to really sideline everybody else and if you look at the you know my my feedback from the department was that hey this is a matter for DHHS well nothing in the world is a matter for DHHS we were very sure that everything else is a matter for the whole government including the treasury and the and the premiers but this one was a matter for DHHS, the experts. And I don't agree with the idea of experts because experts do not know many other things. You know, they are good at a narrow little thing, but they don't see the forest. They see the tree, but not the forest. And I think that's the whole purpose of central agency. So what we've seen is a systemic failure of governance. And I don't see any hope for, you know, of any change happening. I, I know there are a lot of people within the EDF. They're very young, some of them. Some of them are middle-aged like me, um, actually a bit more than middle-aged now. But there are, there are all, all kinds of people of different age groups. And I, I hope they will speak out one day. But I also would like to assure you that, and I've told them to not leave. For this, and one of them said he wanted to leave. No, don't please continue. There need to be good people inside. Uh, we need you to also. And by the way, some of them need that money to survive. And I think I, I really don't want anyone to be self-sacrificing themselves. As I, as I said, I'm in a position where in, in another six years, I can depend upon the age pension. All right. I've reached a point where I could just got to survive five, six years. And I'm, I'm OK after that. I can somehow live and manage. But for the others, I don't want them to do that. And I think it's it's uh, uh, we should not expect the senior people in any case to do any of these things. If they had if they had any guts, I've been talking about this to my own, um, you know, some of my colleagues uh, you know, on the telephone. If our secretary had any any spine, if he had any spine, he would have resigned six months ago. These well, people. Sorry, Sanjay, but it's interesting that you mentioned six months ago. Uh, you said in your piece that Victoria's response has been a sledgehammer to kill a swarm of flies. What should Victoria have done from the start? Do you think? That's a really good question. In fact, that's what I've been arguing from my first article in the 6th of March in 2020 in the Times of India. And I think I've made the same argument on, I think, around the 25th of February to my senior colleagues in the department um, and also raised those matters in, the, in a meeting. Uh, then, of course, I was basically said it's not my business, but uh, the, the argument is very straightforward. And I think a lot of epidemiologists, uh, I've been in touch with people like Martin Kuldorf uh, from the Harvard Business School, uh, sorry, Harvard Medical School, what I'm saying. And so he's been a great supporter of my ideas. And, and there are many other epidemiologists. One of them says that he's never, ever heard of a lockdown uh, for a flu-like virus in his whole life. And he's trained for 20 years in epidemiology. There are a large number of scientists. And so the argument is very clear. You need to look at the actual risks. The risks are very clear. They're distributed in a particular way for this virus. Therefore, you need to take a risk-based approach. Look at the you know, uh, the, the options. So the options could be ranging from isolating the elderly uh, in, in a very safe place up till, till the virus passes. Now, here's another interesting thing. If you look at the history of all viruses. They actually have a peak within six weeks. They do not actually linger on too long unless you try to flatten the curve forever. They come and they go. And so all you need to do is during the first six weeks when the virus is at, at its peak, you need to really take the elderly out of the out of circulation. And the 
very young can actually continue their life uh, with normalcy and the, and the middle category people up to the age of 40 should go around with masks in public transport and others like me should work from home like 60 plus okay so i had given all this advice and i published all this stuff so there is that by the way can be done even right now now that will mean that you actually allow the virus to pass through the young people who are not going to get affected they get the immunity and they can thereafter the young the elderly can come out because the virus is no longer transmitting in the society that would be the excellent approach now sweden tried to do a bit of that but they failed uh, and i i think they've uh, admitted uh, anders tegnell that they took a long time to protect the elderly i think the first step should have been done was to protect the elderly everywhere in the world and i think if we do that well even now after six months it's shocking that we have still got deaths in our aged care homes if we manage to make sure that our aged care homes are protected and the elderly within homes are protected by giving them adequate information and you know potentially any support i think we will reach the the point where the virus can be allowed to run through and it will have virtually no effect on society this virus, by the way, the data are very clear now. Earlier when we were six months ago, and by the way, what I'm arguing is that even if it was Spanish flu, you would still need to do the same things. You would not have a lockdown because lockdowns, by the way, are also prohibited in the World Health Organization's uh, October 2019 book on uh, you know, the, the non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions for uh, uh, flu pandemics. That's, by the way, their own recommendation that this is not recommended in any circumstances. You can read that on your own. That's there in their website. And that's, it's a full-fledged book with full research, which says under no circumstances, you're going to have mass quarantines. Okay? They do not protect. They do not kill the virus. They, all you need to do is to fake, take a risk-based approach. So right from the beginning, we have uh, uh, what I've done, what I believe here is we have done, a, we, have, we had group think on a mass scale with the, with the images coming from China first. Then we had some Italy, Italy images. People went into panic mode, and I think that panic mode has cost us the extra deaths, which I blame on uh, purely on Daniel Andrew. The the deaths that would have come from the Mother Nature, uh, we could have lived with, but the deaths that have come outside that, uh, you know, the death that would have otherwise come, I blame them on on man, on man. The man in this case is Daniel Andrews. Yeah. Might be hard to ask an economist to look into human nature, but I kind of feel that with the government gone this far already and stuck to these policies for so long that it's now too late for them to change course. It's just too much of a problem for them to say, okay, we might have got things wrong. Here's how we can open up the economy. Here's how we can do things differently. Now, the colleagues that you spoke to and the people that you knew when you were uh, in the Treasury, do you reckon there's any people there that would be able to accelerate Victoria's way out of lockdowns a bit quicker and maybe institute something different as a policy response? Or is this going to be the plan? Look, James, I, my belief is that DTF has some of the smartest economists around. Uh, we, I have always believed that Victoria's strategy is the best in Australia, and we are definitely among the best in the world. Uh, I, I, and I'm, I'm not joking here because I've got strong proofs about the kind of advice that we've given is really cutting edge. But, and so there's the very high quality people within the treasury. We, we have a very good recruitment system here. Uh, so my, my, the concern is not about the economists and the advice that they can provide. The issue is really the political issue, whether the politicians are ready to listen. And I believe I've written to the treasurer, Tim Pallas, suggesting that I'm happy to you know, talk to him about this issue because there, is, there are a number of people, there are hundreds of people within DTF who can actually do a cost benefit analysis, who can organize it uh, through the, by the way, we've got a, a vast array of consultants 
and uh, you know experts in in Victoria who can do wonderful cost benefit analysis. So all we need is to do that stuff and risk uh, risk assessments. And what we need is the inputs from the epidemiological models. By all means, put that as an input and a scenario analysis. But leave the total analysis to those who look at the whole society. So the question you've asked is is what I finally raised in my last paragraph in uh, my fin review. There are politicians ready to do this. And by the way, they don't, they're taking Victoria down into a ditch. They're taking Australia down into a ditch that is so deep from which it'll be very hard to recover for potentially decades to come. And I think the, the what I'm hearing from within uh, my treasury, I'm sure you might've heard from friends and other colleagues and others. There is a there is a there is going to be a mass exodus uh, from this place. Um, people have lost trust in the comment here. Uh, there are a lot of people who support this kind of thing, and I think they haven't understood. That. By the way, this reminds me. This is a this I call it great hysteria for a very good reason. This is all the all the characteristics of a hysteria because people, if you ask them and poll them, they have been hyped and scared enough to believe now that this thing is hundreds of times more dangerous and it's killed killed hundreds of times more people than it actually has. So what's happening? The they are very scared. So when you scare people to this extent, okay, then then how do you unscare them? And this is the kind of question these guys should have asked in the beginning. You know, if you scare everyone to this extent, how do you get out of this mess? So they've they've blended up now. The hole that they've dug is so big, uh, it's so mind-boggling. It's four hundred billion dollars worth uh, of damage to the economy in in Australia, and I think a billion dollars a day in Victoria, or something of the sort, or you know, half a billion or something. It's it the, the numbers are mind-boggling in terms of the billions. Uh, but I'm not talking of that the lives lost. So we have and 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 by the way, this is not the end of it. If they continue the stage four. Uh, if they continue to this kind of you know curfews, which are totally unjustified, and the curfew, and then and they start brutalizing the people, I I don't know what what are they trying to get out of this? Are they are they are we Australia at all? I I didn't come to this country honestly for 20 years ago. If if you had if you if I had known that Australia would do this kind of thing, I wouldn't be here, guys. I would be I would be probably back in India. India was at least tolerable. You know, it's a mess, but at least it's not such a bad mess. Right now, people in India, the lockdowns are mostly over. People are getting out and doing their normal things. The virus has killed barely three three days worth of extra extra deaths in India. It's about seventy five thousand extra deaths in India from this virus, compared with uh, ten uh, sorry one million deaths every year on average in India. No, sorry, what am I saying? It's um, yeah, one million deaths uh, in India per per year, by the way. And there are one sixty thousand deaths in Australia as well <clears throat> per year. So we're looking at you know the the virus having basically passed through most of India. And uh, the lockdowns are fine, so I'm actually—I would be better off right now to get back to India. Uh, so we 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 need to, as a society, decide what what we want to do. And the uh, the challenge of politicians is really the, they do a lot of polling all the time. They're busy. They're driven by polling, okay. And uh, until the people of, of Victoria change their mind, and by the way, this happens with all hysterias. No hysteria. If you look at the history of hysteria, this, by the way, is the greatest of all hysterias in the world's history. But all hysterias finally come to an end. And uh, this hysteria, when it ends, it'll it'll be one person at a time deciding for himself. Oh, it, it wasn't that big, really, a deal. It was a. This one is not even as big as the Asian flu. It's not as big as the Hong Kong flu. And these are all 30-year. You know, they come every 30 years. These kind of pandemics. So calling it a Spanish flu, thinking of it as Spanish flu, thinking that tens, hundreds of times more people have died. That panic and the scare that has been caused by the politicians, by our experts, uh, like our chief health officer, who has been talking about this Spanish flu. I mean, the guy is absolutely berserk. I, I can't believe he's a doctor. He doesn't care for what the consequential damage is doing. I mean, what kind, and by the way, there are a lot of doctors now suddenly in touch with me in from Victoria who are opposing this thing. 
they are against it. Okay, so we are saying the real doctors who care for the people would not say and scare up, scare people in this manner. So the unscaring part has to be done by somebody. Who's going to unscare the people? It's going to be these experts. Now, are they going to do it? Uh, I only, uh, you know, human, human beings, the way he, as you mentioned, human nature is complicated. Therefore, I don't expect Dan Andrews to back off. I, ex I would expect someone else to take his place, number one. I would expect someone else to take, uh, you know, uh, the chief health officer's place. Uh, it has to be in that manner because reality is that people don't change their mind till the, till the very end. You, you will find Dan Andrews saying he was right, he was right till the very end of his life. This is the reality of human nature. He will never, ever change. Uh, this is unfortunate. But so, so politically, what's going to happen? But I think what the conversation we are raising today is something that should be continued because I want to, us to understand what are the governance failures? What are the constitutional failures? What are the parameters around our functioning that allowed this kind of power to go to one single person? What happened? Why did we do this? How did we design our society in this manner? And I think that's, that conversation, as I said, will be a long one and potentially may take a hundred years. And this is the way of, as the pace at which society unfortunately works. Sanjeev Sablok, thank you very much for your time uh, and good luck with the future. Thank you, Mira, and thank you, James, very much for having me here. Thank you, bye. Okay, we're now welcome back onto the show, one of the friends of the Young IPA podcast, and also one of the last voices for freedom we actually have in the Victorian Parliament, which is, uh, you know, great to have you on the show, but a sad indictment on the rest of Victorian Parliament, which is David Limbrick. Welcome back from the Liberal Democratic Party. Thank you very much for having me. All right, so I, I, and we... I'd, I'd like to have a more optimistic view that maybe, maybe I'm a small a small movement that's growing rather than a large movement that's shrinking. But anyway, maybe that's just me. But well, If you keep up the speeches like you did about the extent, state of emergency powers, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of non-political friends of mine really get around that speech. So hopefully you are starting something. And uh, But we want to talk to you because we discussed earlier in the show this COVID omnibus bill. And this is, as, like, as we said, it's gone past the lower house. It's now coming up to the upper house. So like the state of emergency powers, it is going to come down to how many crossbenchers that the Labor government can uh, get to agree with this. Now, I would hesitate to guess and say you are against it. And yes. I just want you to know, uh, want us to hear why exactly that is. Okay, so... Um for, for, for the listeners that aren't aware, an omnibus bill is a whole bunch of amendments that are often totally unrelated, all bunched together into a single bill. And a lot of the stuff in this bill is actually fairly um, harmless. You know, they're talking about, um, you know, extending arrangements for remote operations of government facilities and things like this. And it's fairly mundane and it's not a big drama. Um, but there is one part in it which is quite alarming, which relates to uh, authorised officers now and, and giving those authorised officers new powers. Now, an authorised officer uh, is effectively someone who is appointed by the chief health officer to carry out certain functions on behalf of the Department of Health and Human Services and on behalf of the uh, chief health officer. And under this... Uh, new amendment in in the omnibus bill what it allows firstly it allows pretty much anyone to become an authorized officer which is concerning in itself i'm not sure that was intended i think that maybe they just thought police should be but as far as i can tell it seems like anyone can become an authorized officer and it gives them this new power to detain people uh 
who are either um, test uh, positive for COVID-19 or they're a close contact of someone that tests positive for COVID-19 and the authorised officer has a reasonable belief that they're not going to uh, follow directions. So um, like self-isolation, quarantine uh, type directions. And so there's a, there's a number of concerns with this. So firstly, we've got the concerns about someone who's not police actually arresting someone. That has a whole bunch of problems associated with it that I'm really concerned about. Um, I'm not sure that the intent was for anyone other than police to have these powers, but you know, as with all legislation, we don't want to look at just what the intent of the government is because intent, you know, doesn't really count for much. What really counts is what is possible with the legislation, right? So that's what we have to think about the unintended consequences or um, the broadness of this legislation. But if we think about the other aspect of it with uh, someone being arrested for what an authorised officer, whoever that might be, uh, thinks about what someone's going to do, we're giving them the ability to arrest someone because they think that they might disobey a direction. Now, this is a very, very um, dangerous type of uh, situation. And you can think of think of scenarios where this might might be the case. I mean, they're think, they're, I imagine that they're thinking of scenarios where you've got someone who um, has coronavirus and they said, you know, they say, screw you, I'm just going to go out and do my own thing and I don't care what you say, right? That's the sort of situation that they're thinking about. But there's lots of other scenarios here, right? We've seen, think about uh, the scenario that was given to me was imagine that there's a mum, she works part-time, um, she's at home on one of her days off and an authorised officer comes and knocks on her door. And the authorised officer says, uh, one of your workmates has tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, you're a close contact and um, you're now being directed to uh, self-isolate at home for a fortnight or however long it might be that they want them to self-isolate for. And then she says to the authorised officer, oh, but I have to go and pick up my kids from school. Right? That could be enough for the authorised officer to form a reasonable belief that she's not going to obey the directions and she could be arrested at that point and you know, pulled away. Um, there's a whole bunch of scenarios like this that um, are quite alarming. Um, the, the idea that people get arrested who haven't committed a crime but they just think that they're going to disobey some direction is very alarming. And you know, especially after the extension of the emergency powers that we saw that um, we, we've discussed before and I was very opposed to, that the government's grasping for even more power to do more things that are, you know, uh, totally out of line with uh, what should be happening in a free society is quite alarming. There's, and there's a lot of people concerned about this as they were concerned with the, with the extension of the emergency powers. Lots of, I'm getting lots and lots and lots of contacts already by people that are alarmed by this. And um, yeah, I've, I've got concerns and um, you know, I won't be, opposed, I won't be uh, supporting the bill in its current form. Have you heard anything like this before of someone being arrested on suspicion that they might commit a crime? Are there any precedents for this at all in Australia? Because it just seems like 
a huge. I'm not aware of any. I mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't any, but I'm I'm not aware of it. Um, maybe with some of the anti-terror federal legislation, there was some of these sort of weird things that could, you know, they arrest people. See, the other problems here is that the the current um, Public Health and Wellbeing Act already gives power to authorized officers to detain someone uh, that they believe. Uh, is infected with a disease and um, is not going to uh, is going to go out and spread that in the community, right? It already gives them the power, but they also have recourse under that. Every twenty four hours, it needs to be reviewed whether it's still appropriate. Um, there's a whole bunch of safeguards on that. Now, this new power not only gives them authority to stop the person that's infected with that disease, but also anyone that's designated as a close contact. Um, so and and it takes and the the period of detention that they is sort of undefined. So we don't know how long someone could be detained under this. And we've already seen situations where people have had false positives. Um, they've had uh, been falsely uh, identified as a close contact, and then later contacted and said, "Oh, actually, you're not a close contact." So you can imagine situations where someone's designated as a close contact. They say, "No, nah, well, actually, I'm not." I, I don't know that person. I've never con come into contact with that person. I don't know what you're talking about. That could be enough to uh, arrest them, right? Because they say, well, you know, they're, they're denying that they're a close contact with that person. Um, and that could be enough to arrest them. And, you know, they might never have been actually a close contact, but because they're ident identified as such, they're a target under this uh, new law. So, you know, it's just outrageous what they're trying to do here. And um, I think it's very dangerous. It's, it's open to abuse. It's, uh, we, we, and here's the thing, right? I, I imagine in the government's mind, they're thinking, oh, well, you know, common sense will be applied here, you know, discretion and all this sort of stuff. But we've seen how a lot of these laws have been applied and there hasn't been common sense or discretion at all. In fact, you know, uh, they, they said, I think the, 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 Commissioner said that the time for discretion is over. So, you know, that, that was, that, you know, is That's this going to be applied, applied in a sensible way and used effectively? And, you know, I don't trust that at all. Yeah, especially because uh, the last couple of weeks, we've certainly seen instances of what can only be described as police brutality. We've seen a man yeah. get hit by a car and then have his head stamped on. Uh, there was viral footage over the weekend of a man at a beach surrounded by eight officers and put on the ground and handcuffed despite saying he was within five kilometres of his house. Um, and it just seems to be that those powers that exist with the police and the police are struggling to use those powers in a fair and just way are now going to be extended to people that don't have the same training as police officers. Like, I mean, uh, people such as like uh, PSOs on trains and private security guards and such. Yeah, well, possibly. I mean, it, the legislation would allow it, I think. So it would allow, you know, work safe officers to do this sort of thing uh, at workplaces, you know, whether they're going to be designated as authorized officers or not we we don't know but you know if the legislation allows it then we have to uh consider the possibility that these sort of things might happen and you know police at least are trained in how to detain someone and do all that sort of stuff but i'm not sure work safe officers are and private security guards wouldn't be and um you know psos they are trained in how to detain people but again like are they going to be how are they going to be forming these judgments uh, you know a reasonable opinion that that someone is not going to obey some direction. I mean, it could be just a comment could be enough to to set them off, or they might not like the look of you. 
um, you know, I mean, I've had reports to me of, you know, a woman on a train. Um, she was approached by a PSO. Uh, she was going outside the five kilometre um, from her house thing, but she had a legitimate reason. She was going to see her uh, partner, which is allowed. And, um, you know, she was bailed up and questioned and um, ended up getting a fine, even though uh, she maintains that she did nothing wrong and she was acting within the law and within the directions. But, you know, she has to go and try and get that reviewed and fight it and do all that sort of stuff now. And, you know, to my mind, they never should have done anything. So, and look, I... I know that there's been some shocking things that have happened with the police recently, but we have to remember that the police are being asked to do these really weird things at the moment. And, you know, these directions that the police are being asked to enforce, uh, normally they would just be considered, you know, everyday activities. And police are sort of trained to, you know, identify bad guys and go after the bad guys. And now they're sort of being asked to, treat people who are just going about their everyday business as bad guys. And, you know, it's bad things happen in these situations. These people that are having interactions with police now would normally never have interactions with police. They're not criminals. They're just people who have gone for a walk or go to see their boyfriend or, or whatever they're doing. They're having all these sorts of interactions with police. And as everyone knows, you know, when you increase the number of interactions with police, um, bad things can happen, right? Um, and we don't want that to happen. So I've had concerns ever from the, right from the start on how the government has been uh, using these directions and leaning on the emergency powers the entire time and expanding those powers is something that I'm not keen on at all. That's a really good point. I mean, another point is that the, that makes it difficult for police is that the rules actually change a fair bit, which makes it even another element of difficulty for them to keep track of what's going on. Now, mm. we'll move on to a, another question. A news poll this week shows that Victorian support for Dan Andrews hasn't collapsed since last month. It has significantly decreased since April. Uh, it's still about 62%. What do you make of that now? You're sort of um, last time we had you on the show, you uh, disregarded a uh, Roy Morgan poll on the basis that it was a text message poll and you said that, you know, you just basically didn't buy it. What do you make of this one? How do you think it... it well, um, the, the Roy Morgan it? poll was saying about 80%, wasn't it? Hmm. So, I don't know, if you believe both the polls, then we've got a fairly dramatic drop in support in a short, short period of time. Um, look... Uh, Again, I, I don't pay a lot of, uh, I don't put a lot of um, faith in these polls, but, you know, look, it's undeniable that there is a large number of people that support the, the, what the government is doing. However, we have to consider that, you know, we have a very, very authoritarian government here. Authoritarian uh, systems rely on followers, right? And we've seen this with, you know, the I Stand With Dan crew and all this sort of stuff. Um, they're not really um, understanding, to my mind, you know, when I talk to these people, they don't really understand the long-term strategy here. They're not sort of aware of many of the moral trade-offs that the government is making along these lines. They're just, they're just sticking with the tribe, right? Um, and that's what a lot of it is. But there is, a, there is a large and growing number of people who are questioning what the government is doing because it's directly affecting their lives. It's directly 
affecting their ability to uh, work, to conduct their business, to um, interact with other people and, you know, go for, go and see their boyfriend or whatever. And they're asking questions about it. They're saying, what's going on here? Like, and when they see some directions, which they thought, you know, everyone's saying, you know, trust the experts and, you know, there is no other choice. You know, these, these are the sort of um, statements that the government says to sort of shut down rational debate. Uh, people's, People, you know, not everyone's idiots, right? A lot of people out there, they say, about this curfew thing, like, how does that actually work? How does that help people? And people walk along the street with a mask in the middle of nowhere by themselves, and they're saying, how am I actually stopping the spread of the disease by following this law? And lots of people are questioning it. And, you know, it's totally rational to question that, and more and more people will do it, I think, and are doing it. And they're they're not convinced by a lot of the lot of the rhetoric and when you when you scratch the surface you know they keep saying you know trust the experts we're basing it all on the science well you know a lot of it's not based on science at all the the curfew's got nothing to do with science at all in fact the chief health officer wasn't his idea the police weren't even consulted about it apparently um you know it's just some nice idea that probably the premier had i don't know we don't actually know who came up with the idea um a lot of these other things you know they've they've admitted that uh, you know, they can't model risk factors for individual activities. They're just trying to lower overall activity in the community. Therefore, they're not really based on any science. It's just leaning on the precautionary principle. So, you know, there's not really that much science. And when you look at, you know, they talk about, you know, these models and the supercomputer and all this sort of stuff, but the models are very, very one-dimensional, right? They, they just feed a bunch of activity things into this model and try and plot that. But then they're forgetting all of the all of the other things about the harms that they might be causing by their actions are not balanced properly against that. And so to my mind, it's not very scientific at all. So, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not particularly convinced. And I think there's a lot of people out there that aren't convinced and probably a growing number that aren't convinced. I just have one more question about the COVID omnibus bill. Now this mm. is coming before the crossbenchers at the moment. So the, like, these are the, people that are going to decide this what would you say to your fellow crossbenchers as they you know prepare to vote on it oh uh, well you know consider what you're doing here like you're if if you like ultimately right people people focus on the downstream effects right they focus on the police you know kicking someone in the head and and arresting someone and doing all these bad things but ultimately, they're enabled by the government, which is enabled by the parliament itself, right? So ultimately, these downstream effects, the, the crossbenchers or, or whoever wants to support these sort of laws needs to be prepared to take responsibility for the downstream effects of this. And they need to consider that very carefully. And if they're allowing these new powers that uh, conceivably will allow these awful situations to happen... Um, they need to be prepared to take responsibility for that. And, you know, that I think they have to seriously consider that, being held accountable for that. David, you, uh, you retweeted the piece by, co-written by the IPA's Zachary Gorman for the Foundation of Economic Education about the Eureka Stockade, uh, yes. which I won't go through a whole history lesson, but was effectively sort of won in the end by public opinion. Is there much chance of 
is that the way out of this? Is public opinion changes and eventually um, the, the approach changes with public opinion? And if that is the case, how do, how do we make that happen? Yes, I think. And um, I think that the government is intentionally trying to suppress a lot of this conversation. Um, like I said, you know, there is no other choice. Trust the experts. Um, they demonize people who question it. We've spoken about this before about, you know, I think you termed, I thought I, I loved what you said, the demonization of dissent. Um, but we've seen some very, very dangerous and anti-democratic things happen here. And the one that upsets me the most is the uh, selective use of uh, or, or the selective allowance of the right to freedom of assembly. And um, we saw back in June, there was the uh, Black Lives Matter protest, which um, I actually attended. I copped uh, a lot of criticism for attending that, but I wanted to bear witness to what happened there. Um, and what I did witness was actually a fairly well-run uh uh, protest event, uh, you know, people who were exercising their right of free assembly, um, they handed out masks, everyone was wearing masks, and this was before masks were mandatory, by the way, people made a conscious choice to wear masks, though using hand sanitizer and all this sort of thing. And it was fairly peaceful. But here's the other thing, the police were very professional, kept their distance, they were ready for trouble. But you know, there wasn't any trouble, they were there checking, watching what was going on. And they were respectful of people's uh, right to free assembly. Now, what we're seeing recently with protests is you even think about protesting uh, against uh, the government and they'll come and kick your door in, they'll arrest you, like what happened with Zoe Bueller, and she was fairly tame what she was planning. She was actually instructing everyone to follow the social distancing and wear masks and all this sort of thing. Um, if you actually go to a protest, you're very likely to get arrested. Um, they'll send in, you know, guys with shields and stuff and and um, you know, chase you around the park or whatever. Um, but they, equality under law is a very important concept, right? And we are not seeing uh, equal treatment of these two groups that are protesting. And I think that there is a lot of people that want to protest that are not protesting because they don't want to break the law. They don't want to get big fines. They don't want to get hurt. So they're staying at home and, you know, a few people who are just saying, I don't care, I'm going to break the law, I'm going to go out there. They're the ones that are going out and protesting now. It's easy for the government to say, well, you know, these people are crazy. Look, there's only a small number of them. But if they restored the right to peaceful assembly, maybe we'll get a good sense of how much opposition there really is. Now, you mentioned my um, speech before. That I had no idea that that was going to go crazy, right? It, it ended up getting, if you look at it on, on my Facebook page and on YouTube and on other third party things, it was viewed over 300,000 times, right? If we think that, you know, let's say 10% of those people were upset enough to go and protest, that's bigger than the Black Lives Matter march in June, right? And that's just people who viewed one video. So the idea that there, these are small numbers of people, I think, is wrong and i think that's why the government is not keen to restore the right to peaceful peaceful assembly because they might have you know tens of thousands of people on the streets uh against the government and they'll be exposed yeah i reckon sorry terry all right david limbrick thank you so much for your time thanks for having me
Okay, thank you to David and Sanji for those interviews. All right, sorry, long show, big show, huge show, fun show, but we are going to wrap it up with a few stories here at the end. Uh, let's start off. Pete, take us, take us through it. That was Where sharp, start? That was really sharp. I want to start with the Australia Council for the Arts uh, handing over $7 million to 1,100 individuals as part of their, the 2020 Resilience Fund in response to COVID-19 pandemic. Now, there's obviously been a lot of stimulus thrown around in the last little bit, so it's not like the end of the world that the artists got some now. But some of the stuff that got funded is the end of the world, James. Bella de Brera, Dr. Bella de Brera here at the IPA wrote a piece about it in the Daily Telegraph. We're going to, in the piece, there's about half a dozen examples of the worst arts projects that were funded by this thing. James and I have chosen our favourites. James, you go first because I'm a uh, Yeah. I, I, first off, I'm okay with arts being f- funded in the same way that if you're in the cafe industry right now, you're on JobKeeper. If you're an artist and you can't perform your work right now, then you should also uh, be eligible for JobKeeper and so on. But uh, we'll do the funny stuff. Okay. I loved Julie Vulcan's Dark Body. This one got oh! this is, Did you pick that one too? Yes, I did. But that's I thought this was a clear up. winner. So uh, in this one, Julie Vulcan invited uh, gallery visitors to lie down next to three giant mounds made from a combination of mushrooms and dirt and then proceeded to cover their eyes with bags of soil so they could experience the daily activities enacted in the dark around us uh, and an intricate ecology that is essential to our ongoingness with the multi-species world. So basically, she found a way to just shovel dirt onto paying <laughs> customers and that is the dream. That's the she dream. Got- she got 10,000 bucks for that. And I like that she added mushrooms. Like she could have just done the dirt, I reckon. The mushrooms was a special... Was a special uh, what if the mushrooms was a layover from an old art project and it was either chuck them out or use them? She just had them lying around. Anyway, my one, James, is $10,000 to a woman in Victoria who makes giant scarves and stitched text which she places in various bush locations to deliver messages, deliver messages about coal mining and climate change. Now, the reason I like this is because it was 10 grand, which is a lot, and it's just stitching stuff. It's not even like, there's a couple in here that are like, you know, a big glass of water or a big glass cube, you know, which is difficult. She's literally just sewing stuff about climate change and hanging them around the country. 10 grand. So that's why she got my vote. But my, I would have I done the piles of dirt. If I had they it. were two absolute classics. All right. Um, now, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying last week elicited a lot of social media reaction, as I mentioned earlier in the show. Some of it was quite touching. Uh, I mm. want to shout out people that drew attention to the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, pretty uh, progressive, pretty left-wing, was best friends with Antonin Scalia, who was an extreme conservative. So that novel concept of being able to see past someone's political views and actually have them as a friend, not lost on Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Scalia, and that's uh, just something we should all know it is possible, even at the highest points of society. Always found that really refreshing. But some of the social media tributes failed to hit the mark. And so I want, Pete, you to decide who gets the crown for the worst social media tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Okay. I've got two attention. Uh, I've got two nominees here. I'm not going to use their names because these poor people have suffered enough. But <laughs> oh boy. Okay. So social media tribute number one. Just told my ten year old daughter about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She had tears in her eyes, and then she did the Wakanda pose. Uh, sorry. Let me pause there. Pete, do you know what the Wakanda pose is? I don't know exactly what it is, but it's obviously related to that movie, isn't it? Yeah, Black Panther. So it's like uh, you just got to put your arms across your chest. It's like the Black Panther movie. Uh, I don't know. S- same way to Superman putting his arm above his 
uh, head yeah. and flying off. Like it, it's just essential to Black Panther, so you can read into you know Black empowerments and stuff like that, which is what it's used for. But anyway. Then my 10-year-old daughter did the Wakanda pose and said, hashtag Ruth Kanda forever, which is the sort of pop culture crossover that I can celebrate. Did it, do we reckon that happened? Uh, That's right. Don't think so, to be honest. I really don't think a 10-year-old managed to come up with Ruth Kanda forever. But I'll tell you what, one thing, Pete. I've definitely said Ruth Kanda forever to myself no less than 20 times <laughs> since I saw that tweet. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's going to be hard to beat. Ruth Kanda forever. Oh, delicious. All right, second one. Uh... This is like a script, okay? So it's just like an interplay between two people. Roe v. Wade. Welcome to heaven, Ruthie. RBG. Roey, is that you? Roe v. Wade. Thank you for upholding my right to choose. RBG. I was only doing my job. Roe v. Wade. That's not what the Lord says. She can't stop talking about you. RBG. The Lord is a woman. Somehow I always knew. (laughs) End scene. (laughs) Why is a judgment in heaven? Heaven is for humans. Does he think Roe v. Wade is a person? (laughs) One of them has come and said it was the biggest mistake of their life. I can't remember which one. But anyway. Like, Roe v. Wade, thank you for upholding my right to choose. I think yeah. he thinks Roe v. Wade is a person. <laughs> that is mangled. That is quite mangled. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, so, right. I've got to pick the winner. Uh, yeah, which, which one was the worst one there? I'm going to say the second. I don't want to bag the kid, you know. Like, you don't want to have a go at a kid if that happened. But, but the kid definitely did not do it. <laughs> If it makes you feel better, the kid definitely did not do the Black Panther pose and say Ruth Kanda forever. Okay. <laughs> okay, maybe you're right. Yeah, I'll do the first one. I think it's yeah. the first one by a considerable journey. Because uh, she's right. using the kid to make her point. Now, last thing I want to point out with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, death is that a impromptu memorial uh, started in the streets. I think it was outside the Supreme Court. But basically, people gathered around and they sung, in honor of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life, they sung Imagine. To me, could not have picked a worse song. Not not saying that it doesn't fit Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I just don't think anyone deserves to be serenaded with "Imagine" at their death. It's it's not not what even you my need. worst enemy. <laughs> it's not what you need in your final in your final thing. Uh, look, I actually love that song. Imagine we've, we've talked about this a few times, but it has been bastardized by idiots. Do you also like vanilla milkshakes? What's that, sorry? Do you also like vanilla milkshakes? Yeah. And maybe like friends. <laughs> yeah. Do you yeah. mean the show or the? That's why you like. That's why you like Imagine. Oh, <laughs> I can't believe I fell for that. Uh, I thought you meant Friends as in Friends, not Friends as in the TV show. The, the TV show. Yeah, nah, it's all right. I like the theme song. No, nah, Imagine's a great song, James. I, I I, that's the song they should have picked. <laughs> Do all the claps. All right, sorry, but now because we've insulted yeah. uh, the idea of singing Imagine, I think it's only fair that we give people what we would want to be serenaded with at our memorial service. Like eventually when the state funeral is caused for one of our passings, uh, what should be the song that people uh, so. despondently sing together? Well, my James, my favourite song of all time is Don't Look Back in Anger. And actually that has been misused as a, not misused, but the accusation has been misused as a memorial song because it kept getting sung after terrorist attacks in, a, in Britain. And a lot of people were saying, we shouldn't be saying don't look back in anger. We should be getting angry about this. So I want to kind of bring that back and get, don't look back in anger. Separate it from the political dispute and get it back on a positive footing. You know, get it back yeah, there what it, it deserves. Yeah. Uh, and it's it. also a very good message to send to people at your memorial service is <laughs> don't look back in anger. Try try desperately to remember the good parts. Yeah. You've got to take the good with the bad in this life. So, <laughs> All 
right, yeah. uh, I've been on record uh, oh, with this I'm for not- a while, but if at my funeral there's only two songs that are going to be played, and it's Give Up the Funk by Parliament and then Got Your Money by The Old Dirty Bastard. And they're just on repeats. There's no speeches. It's just those two songs back to back until the end. People oh, who know those songs know. I haven't heard either of those songs. I'll, I'll send them to you and you'll know. Uh, all right. Last thing we want to talk about is, uh, this is this one really tickled your fancy, Pete. Princeton University uh, said the quiet part out loud and they're suffering for it. I have been pushing for this to happen a little bit. Maybe not actually out loud with words, but in my head, I've been thinking this is something that should happen. And that is that Princeton University President Christopher Eisgruber, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, wrote an open letter on the university's website saying racism and the damage it does to people of colour Persist at Princeton, as in our society. Racist assumptions from the past also remain embedded in structures of the university itself. So the Department of Education, the Trump administration, then sent them a letter saying, we are considering withdrawing your $75 million of funding that you received from the federal government because uh, it's against Title VI to give money from, uh, from the, for the federal government to give money to organizations that are racist and discriminatory. And they also said, because you've been putting in your program, uh, you know, the things you have to submit, the program documents to get the $75 million of funding since to at least 2013, you've been saying you're not a discriminatory body, which is one of the requirements of getting federal funding. So you're lying to us as well. So if you're racist and you're lying, we're not going to give you federal money. And I just think this is something we should be doing across the West. If these universities want to have all these stupid uh, workshops where everyone says, yes, I'm a guardian of white supremacy and I'm racist, it's like, okay, fine. We're not going to fund you because you're racist. I don't know why this hasn't happened earlier and it's the best thing that's happened this year. <laughs> I'm just relieved for him, to be honest. I am relieved for Dean Christopher Icegruber. Uh, I mean, can you imagine the mental... Para- like, just the mental weight that that has been hanging over him, that $75 million in federal funding has been going year after year to a racist yeah. institution. Yeah. He's finally free of it. Can you imagine yeah. what a relief it would be? He must be sleeping like a baby. It should. He would be a relieved person, but he should be. But he said the university disagrees and is looking forward to furthering our educational mission by explaining why our students and actions are consistent not only with the law, but also with the highest ideals and aspirations of this country. It's like, no, nah, mate, sorry. Too late, too late. 75 million already gone. So, yeah, that's my view on that. Okay, we'll leave it there. That is it for the show this week. Bumper show, huge show. Uh, Thank you to everyone for listening. If you like the show and you're not, uh, I don't, let me say. All right. If you like the show, if you enjoyed that, except for that last little five seconds of word vomit that I just had, uh, make sure you're leaving us a review on iTunes uh, and we're also available on any podcast platform and on YouTube so if you do have friends and family that would enjoy the show make sure you're telling them about us uh, and then go listen to the IPA's other podcast so the IPA with you had an episode come out yesterday that was big on the Omnibus Gideon got very fired up if you want some more Omnibus stuff that is where to go we've also got Looking Forward coming out every week they've got an episode coming out today as well Viral Banter had a new episode last week and uh, then you can go back in the IPA vault listen to Australia's Future listen to Five Favourite Books listen to the Great Books of Literature podcast alright that is it from me see you guys next week see you guys thank you Saul bye bye